as has already been mentioned by way of announcement, as well as even the thoughts that were expressed in prayer as we collectively prayed a few moments earlier, it is a joyous opportunity and a grand blessing indeed for us to echo the sentiment of Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. On the first day of the week, when we have that special opportunity to direct our attention and minds upon things most eternal in character, to be edified and built up in the most holy faith, to be drawn together through the bonds of love and fellowship not only to one another, but to also be bound together to our Heavenly Father. What a powerful thought to consider the lesson, at least by virtue of its title this morning, Jesus the Christ. It is, after all, He, the very reason for which we've gathered, the very artifact or the very being through whom we pray, the very one who is in fact the thoroughfare that shall lead all those who are the faithful to heaven itself. As you can see in the subtitle though, perhaps the lesson will take a bent or a path that might have been a bit unexpected. After all, how can one know that Jesus was and continues to be the Messiah? Let's first make some introductory comments to set the stage for that lesson and then turn more interestingly to that text that was read by Brother Colonel just a few minutes ago. In fact, by virtue of these introductory thoughts, this is what I would ask you to consider. All of us recognize so powerfully and so very well, in fact, not only ourselves, but others whom we know from day to day, Jesus himself was a dramatically amazing and significant figure who walked upon this earth many years ago now. And upon asking various questions about him, such as, was he a godly man? Almost everyone whom we would ask that would affirm absolutely he was. Was he a caring person? Without a doubt. Was he a fantastically superb teacher? Certainly. No one really, at least very few, would ever argue the sentiment of questions like that. Was he a prophet of God? Again, no doubt we begin to see already that there are several features, aspects, qualities of the Savior. Very few would ever question or doubt. But may I submit to you there is one other descriptive word used in the Word of God so often for Him. In addition to being called a teacher, and in addition to being categorized as a prophet, He's also called the Messiah. He's also called the Christ. Over 250 times in the Word of God, our Savior is Himself expressly said to be the Messiah, or that is to say, in the Greek, the Christ. The Hebrew word Messiah is equivalent to the Greek word Christ. So to say that He's the Messiah is equivalent to saying He's the Christ. It is at this point that we run into trouble, at least with some. Though many would agree He's a great teacher, a godly man, a compassionate and loving person, when you ask them, was he the Christ? Was he the Son of God? Now there are some who would not be so quick to answer yes. The Orthodox Jew would say he was not. A Muslim would say he was not. In fact, there may be others who, due to indifference or apathy, might also be less than quick to affirm that he was the Christ. It's at this point that might I turn your attention to that text that Brother Colonel read a few minutes ago. In the very closing verses of the 18th chapter of Acts, we encounter a man named Apollos. Apollos was a very notable figure who was born in that great Egyptian city of Alexandria. He was a very eloquent man, skilled and talented in speaking. What's more, 
he found himself in a position that he didn't fully understand all in the re religious world that he should. We might remember that Aquila and Priscilla expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. That man named Apollos formerly had known only the baptism of John, but under the tutelage and the instruction of Aquila and Priscilla, he came to understand the truth of the Christ. It's at this point we encounter verses 27 and 28. Overcome by a desire to share this marvelous good news about the Christ and overcome with a desire to help others come to know that truthfulness, he desired to go into Achaia where he could preach and teach and share the good news of the Christ. But isn't it interesting that he was going in that place? Notice those whom he confronted. Verse number 28. Speaking of Apollos, it says, And he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Have you ever wondered in reading that text, what Scriptures did Apollos use? As he stood face to face and preached to these die-hard Jews, to those who were not receptive to the Christ, at least initially, he somehow used passages of the Bible and proved to them that Jesus was the Christ. What passages did he use? What concepts did he mention in his presentation or sermon that so overwhelmingly convicted them that they came to realize that their stance was an error and that they were now of those who believed that Jesus was the Christ? The inspired writer Luke does not give us the text of the sermon that Apollos used. He does not set forth before us the principles and concepts. This morning, may I submit these three, at least for your consideration, these lines of reasoning that converge to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. It is not enough to claim he was a prophet. It is not enough to say he was a loving man. It is not enough to claim he was a compassionate and wonderful person unless we're willing to accept because the Scripture so prove it that he was the Messiah. We shall forever be lost. What are some of these passages that Apollos may have used? Let us return first and discuss at least for a few moments the matter of genealogy. That is a phrase, a word if you will, that may not always be our favorite. As we open the pages of God's Word and peruse through its 66 books, we find upon study that there are many instances and places where genealogy is a rather notable part of the Word of God. At this point, Though you and I may not always invest the greatest attention in those genealogies, we must not lose sight of the fact they are the Word of God. All Scripture, that includes the genealogies, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why, Paul, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Thus, those genealogies do serve a purpose. They're in the inspired word for a reason. Let's consider one potential reason this morning. Notice as we consider them, the Old Testament stated many truths and many facts about the one who would be the Messiah. In Genesis 3.15, we're expressly told that he'd be of the seed of woman. In fact, God promised it to the serpent on that occasion. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. Reference is made immediately to the seed of woman and the fact it would bruise the very head of the serpent. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, 
we learn something else that this one, this Messiah, would be of the seed of Abraham. Thus, he must have been a physical, lineal descendant of the man named Abraham. No person who is not so could ever possibly be the Messiah. In fact, in our Bible study lesson this morning, we noted that he's also the descendant of Jacob. Again, Genesis 26, verses 1 through 5, stated again as the star of Jacob in Numbers 24. If you might notice, I've listed a few other texts for your consideration. In, number, in Genesis 28, we read that he was to be a descendant of Jacob. At this point, we're beginning to see some interesting features. But in some ways, the plot only thickens. He would be a descendant of Judah. In terms of the sons of Jacob, Genesis chapter 49, this Messiah, this Christ, furthermore, in 2 Samuel 7, would be a descendant of David. At that point, if we pause and ask the following question, we have seen then that a physical descendancy was under description. Any person thus who does not meet that criterion and who can trace his ancestry to the proper places could not possibly be the Christ. Notice furthermore, in Isaiah 11 verse 1, he would be of, a, one of, the, of the seed of Jesse. In Zechariah 4 verse 6, he would be a descendant of Zerubbabel. May we pause and notice what we've seen. As we look at the character of those genealogies, what purpose did they then serve? The Jews of the Old Testament were meticulous characters in terms of genealogy. They kept up with it. They traced it. They kept very strict and diligent records. When the time came for the Messiah to enter the world by the plan of God, they would have been able to very carefully and diligently check the lineage, the actual family, if you will, of the Christ versus these, they would easily have known whether or not the Savior fulfilled every one of these matters spoken of in prophecy. And if at any time he failed on any one count, their genealogies would have made it clear. As we come to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1 as well as Luke chapter 3, extensive genealogies of the Savior are given. What do we learn from those genealogies? Here are some of what we learn. That Jesus fulfilled each and every one of those Old Testament prophecies absolutely. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was of the seed of woman. He was a descendant of Isaac and Jacob and David and Jesse and Zerubbabel and all the others. The ones that have been mentioned, proven in themselves in the genealogies of the New Testament to be true. Now, might we notice at this point one thing not said? Even though this Messiah was to be the seed of woman, was he ever called the seed of man? He was not, and for good reason. In fact, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that a virgin shall conceive, Isaiah 7, 14, and furthermore that a woman shall compass a man, Jeremiah 31, verse 22. Those statements thus show that no wonder he was never called the seed of man. Joseph, though the husband, if you will, of Mary, was not his physical father. He was born of the Holy Spirit, Luke 1.35. These statements about genealogy perhaps lead us to conclude this opening aspect of our lesson in this way. When those Jews to whom Jesus preached, when he thus made statements identifying himself as, as the Messiah, not one time in all the New Testament do we ever read that they 
exactly told him, well, you do not fulfill the prophecies. It is impossible for you to be the Messiah. Though they often questioned what he said, and though they often didn't agree with that which he taught, never once did they question his fulfillment because they had the genealogies and they knew that he fulfilled them. In fact, the latter points might well be these. Today, those who are of our number upon the earth who still do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, what options do they have? Many of them are still looking for him to come. Could that be a possibility now? Notice, those genealogies that would prove a person to be the Messiah are long since destroyed and gone. There's not a person alive on this earth today that can trace his descendancy to Abraham or Zerubbabel or David or any of the others that we've mentioned. When the Roman army led by General Titus overran Jerusalem in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. The records were burned. Those records were the very ones that one could ultimately utilize to prove that he was a descendant of these very Old Testament worthies. That being said, what would be our conclusion? These genealogical prophecies, if the Messiah has not yet come, are useless. They would not be of any help in affirming their person today would be the Christ. Friend, Jesus must have come. The Messiah must have come prior to 70 A.D. when those records were destroyed. Thus, the time frame has long since passed. This is one line of argumentation that Apollos may have used to prove by virtue of those genealogies that the Christ was the very one before them, that they had in fact not many years earlier put to death. Jesus was the Messiah. Are there other lines of presentation besides just the genealogies? Consider yet another one that Apollos may have used effectively. Taken primarily from Genesis 49, a text to which we shall turn our attention again, we remember that on this occasion, Jacob made a rather dramatic prophecy. A prophecy that would pinpoint very specifically some things about the Messiah. As we revisit that prophecy, let's use it in our own thinking today to help us see more carefully about the nature that Jesus in fact is the Messiah. I've entitled this section of the lesson, Judah's Scepter. May I revisit Genesis 49, and let's read verses 8 through 12. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes." Shortly before his death, Jacob pronounced various prophecies upon his sons. Those twelve sons that would ultimately be the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. As he came to Judah, he made the statement that we just now read. Specifically, verse number 10 will be the focus of our effort. Let us again notice how it begins. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. Many things about that may intrigue us, cause us to wonder, 
But the facts of the matter are these. Specifically, Jacob told Judah that, verse number 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the character of the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. What does the scepter refer to? What is the word Shiloh? What does it mean? What about the nature of the lawgiver? All that put together lead us to say this. The scepter is specifically that given symbolic feature representative of a rod, a ruler, the capability of jurisdiction and the setting forth of law. In other words, Judah, Jacob said, will maintain the capability of setting forth her own laws until Shiloh come. Throughout the character of the Old Testament, we remember that many times God's people were taken into captivity, but it was only for a limited time they would come forth. In the days of the judges, when there was much fighting between Israel and the Philistines and the Midianites and various other characterizations of people, God's people would be delivered after a while. They would again reign supreme and set forth their own laws and experience freedom and liberty to serve God freely. Later on, there was the Babylonian captivity, which of course lasted only seven decades, and yet again God's people came forth, as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah illustrate to us. But might we observe at this point, there was coming a time when, for perpetual character, the nature of their own freedom and jurisdiction by matters of religion would be forever taken from them. Isn't it interesting that when Shiloh would come, that would happen? We thus have an amazing, an amazing prophecy of chronology here. If you and I can only determine when the scepter departed from Judah, we ought to know when Shiloh came. Who is Shiloh? The word Shiloh means the bringer of peace, the prince of peace. And Isaiah later would say in both Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 that Christ is the prince of peace. He is the very one who is the giver and bringer, the one who sets it forth. Didn't Jesus himself say, My peace I leave with you, John 14, 27? Did he not say in John 16, 33, that I've overcome the world and thus all its tribulation? Peace be with you. Is not the gospel of Christ Jesus in Romans 10, 15 called the gospel of peace? Jesus is the one that brings the peace that passes understanding, Philippians 4, 7. In light of all of that, when you and I can figure out when the scepter departed from Judah, the Shiloh, the Christ, the Messiah must have come. The facts of the matter then are these. Judah maintained her capability in those matters, historically until the following time. These notes I present for your consideration. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, we read about a leader, a ruler named Archelaus, the son of Herod. When he was the ruler... We learned historically that the Romans ultimately took his power from him. Rome became the leading authority, the leading power over the Palestinian area, and never did Rome give it back. In fact, it has never yet been given back. That occurred in the year 6 A.D. when Jesus was 10 years old. Thus note with me, Jacob had told Judah, and for all the world, by virtue of inspiration, to notice that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. The scepter was taken from Judah in 6 AD. It is thus necessary that the Messiah must have come either shortly before or at that time. 
to fulfill prophecy, it'd be an impossibility for the Messiah not yet to have come, for the scepter has long since departed from Judah. These facts are intriguing, aren't they? Are they some of what Apollos mentioned to prove and to illustrate the character of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah? Did the Jews, upon seeing these prophecies, become to the realization that, yes, He does fulfill these amazing prophecies and also in their power? To consider all of these, perhaps, is to answer the very question. Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, is the Messiah. Not only a good man, not only a compassionate person, not only a prophet. He is more than all of them. It's at this point we might remember Peter's remark in Matthew 16. When Jesus asked, whom do men say that I am? He was placed in high company already. Some thought he was John the Baptist, some Jeremiah, some Elijah, some one of the prophets, but that wasn't enough. Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah. The Christ come from God. To say he's a prophet alone is insufficient. To say that he was a good man is insufficient. Perhaps the third line of presentation that Apollos might have used. As we consider the other prophecies in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy nestled in the book of Daniel. In fact, our Savior himself made reference to this one. It is the prophecy concerning the very nature of the anointed one described in Daniel 9. It is to that chapter I would ask your attention again. Beginning in verse 23 of that chapter, Daniel was given a revelation by the angel Gabriel. And in that revelation, some information given to him that would forever pinpoint the arrival of the Messiah. Now note, chronology is here given. If only we can deep, more deeply understand that, this would certainly be one of the things Apollos might have chosen to mention. Let us read beginning in verse number 23 of Daniel chapter 9. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times." And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week shall he cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Daniel was a noble individual, to be sure. He was, of course, one of those that found himself in the captivity related to Babylon. But yet he was a studious person of the Scriptures. The opening two verses of Daniel 9 remind us that Daniel studied, and by studying the book of Jeremiah, he came to realize that the 70-year sentence for God's punishment upon God's people was about to end. He proceeded to pray earnestly 
and with great interest to know when this finality would occur and what would happen thereafter. In the aftermath of that, Gabriel was sent by God to give Daniel great information, not only about the specific thing of God's deliverance of his people from Babylon, but a far-reaching impact to the coming of the Messiah. Notice the word Messiah occurred twice in that text we read. Let's revisit it and look more carefully. What expressly was being said by Gabriel to Daniel? I've placed some notes there on the screen for your consideration. Notice verse 24. Daniel, 70 weeks are determined by God. 70 weeks. We understand often in prophetic studies in the Old Testament, the word week represents for us an amount of time that has to do with a symbolic nature. And so it is here. He didn't mean literally 70 weeks, which would be a little less than a year and a half. Rather, he meant that each one of the days was a time span representative of a year. That's told to us in Ezekiel 4, verse 6. Thus, 70 weeks, with each week, of course, including seven days, would be 490 days. Thus, that would be a period of 490 years. As that information was revealed, what was to be understood? Daniel, 70 weeks are determined. The plan and power and spirit of God has been to determine 490 years until the completion of the work of the Messiah. Now notice, he tells us when this counting begins. Did you note with me the reading? He said 70 years are determined, but when does the counting start? Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah. If you and I can determine when the commandment was given, that Jerusalem was to be restored and rebuilt, 490 years later, we should find the Messiah. Again, the facts of history and Old Testament presentation are these. From the time that God's people were in captivity, the first expedition back was that led by Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. That one was not specifically related to the character of the one mentioned here to, to the prophet Daniel. Notice there was another expedition also sent back and to restore Jerusalem and to rebuild it in its greatness. It was led by Ezra in 457 B.C. Might we pause and ask, if we take that one and the book of Ezra states that Ezra did return to rebuild the wall as well as the city, if we count, the period of time set forth by Daniel, starting in 457 B.C., where do we end? Notice that the prophecy involved three time periods. Seventy weeks was divided first into seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then one final week. We're told in verses 25 and 26, the first seven weeks would be the literal rebuilding of Jerusalem. Its wall would be built, the temple would be reconstructed. That occurred in the book of Ezra. That part was finished. The next 62 weeks would take us by count to the year 26 A.D. So after 69 weeks, we arrive at 26 A.D. What happened in that year? Had the Messiah come like the prophecy indicated? The year 26 A.D. was the very year our Lord's public ministry began. Luke chapter 3, verses 30 and following. What amazing prophecy. The very year our Lord's public ministry began... Fulfilling the 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy, 
brings us to a beautiful appreciation of what happened in the final week. Notice again in verses 26 and 27, in the midst of the week, the Messiah would be cut off. Midst of the week, that's three and a half days. Three and a half days, again, symbolically, that's three and a half years. How long did the Lord's public ministry last? Three and a half years, and the Jews put him to death. Just as the prophet had been told, just as Gabriel had revealed to Daniel, as all of that took place, might we notice that it was the Messiah that was under discussion. What a powerful proof then that this very one named Jesus was in fact the Messiah. The very matters of his public ministry, the features of his life, harmonized perfectly with what Gabriel told Daniel. Might we notice though in verse number 24 what this Messiah would accomplish. Notice he will finish the transgression. Furthermore, he will make an end of sins. He'll make reconciliation for iniquity. He'll bring in everlasting righteousness. He'll seal up the vision and prophecy, and he'll anoint the most holy. Six things that was to be accomplished. Notice them very briefly. What about the Messiah in finishing transgression? We understand that doesn't mean that never again would man sin. But that meant that once and for all, there would be a means by which human sin can be forgiven that it could be remitted. That's what was preached on Pentecost, and that's what the Hebrew writer reminds us of time and again. Once for all, a sacrifice for sins was made. Nextly, to make an end of sins, as we just noted, to forever remit, pay the price for sin, and thus eliminate them in the very sight of God. For once He forgives them, they're entirely removed from His book, if you will, and remembered against us no more. The very statement Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following. To make reconciliation for iniquity, Jesus did that very matter, providing a way to bind us back to God, reconciling us to the Father, bringing everlasting righteousness. Our Savior did that. To stand right before God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. To seal up the vision and prophecy, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10 to anoint the most holy. To say all of that is to say, my strong suspicion is matters like these are exactly what Apollos may have used that day. As we make notice of the, those remarks, that leads me to affirm that timetable, where I've tried to list more carefully some of the features and some of the things that we've just spoken of somewhat in passing. The prophecy of the anointed, referring to the Messiah in Daniel 9, is a perfect description of how that God works all things according to His providential will and brings about His will in exactness. And if only we, with open mind, will open those pages and let them sink into our hearts, we'll come to understand that Jesus was more than a compassionate man, more than a prophet, more than a loving person. He is, in fact, who He said He was. He testified to that woman at the well in John 4, I am the Messiah. Later, he would say, He that speaketh unto them, he again, calling himself the Messiah, he was the Son of God. We remember that shortly after he died, there was one standing nearby, referring to the events that had taken place with his death, and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. May we never forget, but be always reminded that he was the Son of God, and that God sent his own Son to die for me and to die for you. 
He was not some arbitrarily created being in heaven. It was His own beloved Son. And He gave His life that you and I can be saved. Apollos, in Acts 18.28, mightily convinced the Jews of that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. To those with an open mind, you and I can prove from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Of that, there is no doubt. When you and I consider and believe that fact today, we have only one response, to humbly bow before Him and do that which He has commanded. Anything else is absolute and open rebellion, and anything else is a certainty to lose my soul and yours. Today, have you then openly responded to Him in faith? He says you must believe in Him as the Son of God. Believe Him to be the Messiah. Repent of your sins. Confess, those, confess His name as Lord and Master of your life. And humbly then be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in doing that, or in rededicating your life to the cause of the Master, that too can be so quickly accomplished by virtue of your repentance and confession, and we would be happy to pray with you and for you, and in so doing to reinstate you in your state of justification before God. These things have been challenging matters that Apollos used. May you and I be able to use them too in our discussions with others and to affirm in our own heart the power of the faith that we so wonderfully have. If we can assist you in your public obedience to the gospel today, won't you come, even now while together we stand and while we sing.